Tonight we're starting our series on Ephesians. So I'm going to share about our passage that we read a few minutes ago, but also I want to give you some context for the letter itself, for the area of Asia Minor that Paul wrote this letter to, and help you picture Ephesus, the people of the church, Paul's experiences there, and help you imagine that as we go through the rest of the series over the next few weeks. Now, I was in Ephesus in 2018 on a study trip with Northern Seminary, and my favorite thing about Ephesus was the cats. <laughs> I love cats, so I was thrilled on this entire trip through Turkey and Greece to see cats everywhere, everywhere. They were outside of our hotels begging for breakfast. I started taking extra food from the buffet in the morning and passing it out to cats throughout the day. Um, I learned my lesson on that trip, and when I went to Israel a few years later, I actually just bought cat food and carried it around in my coat pockets everywhere I went, and I made so many friends. The cats were at all of the ancient sites that we visited, but there were an especially a lot of cats in Ephesus. And it turns out Ephesus is known for that. There's actually a book called Cats of Ephesus written by the Austrian scientist who's the lead archeologist of the dig at the site in Ephesus. So the, the docents and the, the, uh, the groundskeepers and the tour guides know the cats, love the cats, feed the cats, make sure they have water. So all the cats around Ephesus are very well cared for. So as you walk around Ephesus, you see cats um, on the, the statue of Nike. You see cats in the small theater, you see cats in the big theater, and you see cats as you go down the shopping streets and posed by the library of Celsus. And then there's a whole set of terraced apartments that go up the hillside, these rich people's villas, and right outside the villas was a mother cat nursing her three kittens. The villas are incredible. The mosaics and the frescoes are so bright and you can see the oranges and the reds and the purples and the blues and the colors and the luxury that the wealthy people in Ephesus lived in. So that's my first favorite thing about Ephesus. My second favorite thing about Ephesus is the Library of Celsus. It's a two-story library, beautiful facade. And it was the third largest in the Roman Empire, right up there with Alexandria and Pergamum. Now, most people know about the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. I've seen variations on the memes that you know you're a book lover if you still haven't gotten over the destruction of the Library of Alexandria, which is very true for me, also true about the libraries at Pergamum and Ephesus. The one in Ephesus held 12,000 scrolls, and it was unfortunately destroyed in a fire. The inside was destroyed. All the scrolls were burned in 262, but that facade stood until the 10th or 11th centuries when it was destroyed in an earthquake. So it was completely leveled, but in the 1970s, the architects, uh, the archaeologists built it up again. So you can actually go inside and look around. Those are my two favorite things about Ephesus. And as I prepared the sermon, I wondered what were Paul's favorite things about Ephesus. It is possible that Paul also liked cats, but I, it, it probably was the people. Like, Paul really loved his coworkers, so probably the people he knew there were his favorite thing about Ephesus. I think it would be, you know, his dear friends, his coworkers. You can read Acts 18 through 20 and see some of Paul's story in Ephesus. He was there for probably three years over two different visits. He knew the city, he knew the church leaders there. Now, church history holds that the beloved disciple John went to Ephesus with Mama Mary. We know that Jesus commissioned him to care for Mary, so he took Mary to Ephesus, and they lived out their days there. Supposedly, Mary's house is up on the hill above the city, 
And just outside the city is St. John's Church, which is named after him. So there's good tradition that they ended up there. No one has evidence about whether Paul actually interacted with them. But I like to imagine that their paths had to cross. It's a big city, but it's not that big of a city. And I just wish we knew the history of Paul and John and Mary being there. But we do know that he was friends with Priscilla and Aquila there, and that they lived in Ephesus for a time. The first time Paul was there, he was teaching in the synagogue, and then he left and set sail from Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is far from the water. If you climb up the stairs in the largest amphitheater, and you're way up at the top, and you look way out into the distance, you can see the ocean just a little bit. But it used to be right up against the city. It was a harbor town. So Paul was able to sail in and out of Ephesus easily. He came back again later, and he taught in the synagogue for three months, but then he moved to a public lecture hall. Oops. It printed upside down. There we go. Okay. So he went away again after that long two-year visit. And on his last trip near there, when he was on his way to Jerusalem, he didn't actually go into Ephesus itself because he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. But he landed at Miletus nearby, and he sent for the elders of Ephesus to come meet him at Miletus. And there's a beautiful emotional scene on the beach at Miletus where he's sharing about the end of his life that he knows is coming, the difficulties that are facing him. And it's this really emotional goodbye. In Acts 20, it says, When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that he would never see, they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul had a long and deep history with the city of Ephesus. I also wondered what were the favorite things about the city for the people who lived and worked there. Besides the Christians, for everyone else, it was undoubtedly the temple to Artemis or the Artemision. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was bigger than the temples in Athens. It was this huge, gorgeous site that was about two kilometers outside the city. Very close, easy to make the processions there and back again annually. All that stands of it now is one column. And it's interesting that from the Church of St. John, if you look out over the plain where the temple used to be, there's the Church of St. John is still standing, but there's only one column that they've re-erected to the temple to Artemis. And they used to have these grand and glorious processions that went down to the temple. And one of those is described in the novel uh, from Xenophon of, of Ephesus called Ephesiaca, or Anthea and Habakomis. And I want to read you a couple paragraphs of that because it really helps you see what the worship of Artemis was like at the time. This was probably written um, maybe 40 or 50 years after Paul was there, so pretty close to the culture. It's a short little Greek novel. My daughter Catherine and I both read it this summer, and it's a rollicking adventure tale full of pirates and brigands and these two lovers who get separated and journey all over the Roman Empire, but they meet first at this, uh, this procession to Artemis. For the spectacle, there was a large crowd, both local and visiting, for it was customary at this assemblage to find husbands for the girls. The procession marched along in file, first the sacred objects, torches, baskets, and incense, followed by horses, dogs, and hunting equipment, some of it martial, most of it peaceful. Each of the girls was adorned as for a lover. Heading the line of girls was Anthea, daughter of Megamedes and Euripides, locals. Anthea's beauty was marvelous and far surpassed the other girls. Now listen to this description of her. It doesn't have much context for us for the letter to Ephesians, but when you look at the letters to 1st and 2nd Timothy, which were written to Ephesus, 
all the, the stories about um, braided hair and modesty make more sense when you have this context of what it was like. Anthea's beauty was marvelous and far surpassed the other girls. She was 14, her body was blooming with shapeliness, and the adornment of her dress enhanced her grace. Her hair was blonde, mostly loose, a little of it braided, and moving as the breezes took it. Her eyes were vivacious, bright like a beauty's, but forbidding, like a chaste girl's. Her clothing was a belted purple tunic, knee-length and falling loose over the arms, and over it a fawn skin and a quiver attached, with arrows, javelins, and dogs following behind. Often when seeing her at the shrine, the Ephesians worshipped her as Artemis. So also at the sight of her on this occasion, the crowd cheered that she was the goddess herself. And now we understand like the wealth, the modesty, the inappropriateness in a worship setting, the braided hair. We can see what Paul's talking about later when he writes to Timothy. As the crowd of girls passed by, no one said anything but Anthea. And so when the procession was over, the whole crowd repaired to the shrine for the sacrifice. So this was the big deal in Ephesus, was this temple to Artemis. And so the themes in Ephesians, as we get into later, we'll see like the battles of the principalities and the powers were a real issue for them. The sexual immorality, the idolatry, very real in the context of Ephesus. Now, my one regret from the trip was not actually getting an Ephesian Artemis. I ended up getting a Diana in Athens, but this is, this is the, the Greek version. This is not the Ephesian version. The Ephesian Artemis was um, much more buxom, and she was sometimes considered the goddess responsible for keeping women safe in childbearing, which also makes sense in First Timothy. I did have a little bit of a moral quandary, though. I was so disappointed that I hadn't bought this Artemis statue. I was wondering, the whole fight in Ephesus over Demetrius, the silversmith, and selling the images of Artemis, like, maybe wishing I had bought an idol isn't the best thing for me to be thinking. So I went back and forth. I'll be there again leading that trip next year, and I probably will buy an Artemis for sermon illustrations. So I hope you can picture this beautiful, wealthy, important city with its marble streets, shining white in the hot Turkish sun, people probably as sunburned as I was from all the sunlight and the reflection. Now, here's the perhaps slightly disappointing part about all this context. It is possible that Ephesus isn't really the recipient of the letter. We're going to discuss. Again, as I said, because this is the first sermon in the series, I want to give a little context. So all the commentaries on Ephesians start with this discussion that I will try to summarize for you very quickly before we get into our text for the evening. There are multiple views on the authorship of Ephesians. Was it actually written by Paul? Was it written by Paul to the Ephesians? Was it written by Paul as a circular letter to the churches of Asia Minor? Or was it written maybe 50, 40 years later by a disciple of Paul? who was mimicking his style, perhaps even copying Colossians. It misses some of the regular themes in some of Paul's other letters. There's not that eschatological urgency. The end of the world is coming. Jesus is coming back. We have to be ready. That's missing from this letter. There's not his focus on singleness. He talks about marriage, but he doesn't mention singleness, which he often does in his other letters. In Ephesians 3.2, there's a question about whether he's writing to people who knew him or not. It says, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. Does this mean it's written to people who don't know Paul? Is it possible that Paul wrote it 
from Rome as general encouragement. Um, maybe he sent Tychicus to Asia Minor to local churches where they could copy the letter, add their location to it, and apply it to their situation. That would be called a circular letter. Now, there's no blank space left in the manuscripts for someone to fill in their letter, but also we don't have original copies, so we don't know what scribes copied and what they didn't. You know, he could have said to the churches of the Lycus Valley or to the churches of Asia Minor, but he didn't. Now, church history has long held that this letter was written to the Ephesians. That, that tradition is attached to it. Lynn Kohick, in her commentary, is very convinced that it was written by Paul to Ephesus. She says, you have to remember that if Paul wrote it from his imprisonment in Rome, he had been away from Ephesus for probably seven years. And if there was high turnover, maybe some of them didn't remember him. I served at an international church in the Netherlands for eight years. We had a lot of students and expats, and there were always people coming and going, some for a few months, some for a few years. And the church would almost completely turn over every couple of years. If I went back now, two years later, probably two-thirds of the people in the church would have no idea who I am, even though I served there for eight years. So sure, it's possible that Paul is writing this later to people who don't necessarily know who he is. Or maybe there's multiple house churches, some know him and some don't. Some were maybe Jewish, some were maybe Gentile, and maybe they did need unity, because he talks about unity a lot. There is some content in the letter that, that seems to speak to the Ephesian situation, but it's a stretch to apply it. It's more broad themes. You know, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for example, he wrote very specific advice for their particular situations, and we don't really see that in Ephesians. There's references to pagan practices. Some of his teaching counters the cult of Artemis. There was perhaps a fear of, of the forces of evil in Ephesus particularly, as we can see in Acts 19 with the riots, and maybe Paul is speaking to that in this letter. Ephesians 5.5 does address idolaters and immoral people, which you can see from the scene of the worship of, of Artemis. There was idolatry and there were immoral people. Klein Snodgrass, in his commentary, thinks it's possible that it was written as a general follow-up to the specific teaching of Colossians. A lot of similarities between Colossians and Ephesians. Some wording is the same, exactly the same word for word. So maybe he wrote Colossians specifically to Colossae and then wrote this more general letter. And this goal, the goal of the letter seems to be uh, identity formation and unity, which is applicable to a lot of churches. It does mirror some of the documents found in Qumran, so it seems to have a Jewish sense, um, and it was probably written before 66 AD. General consensus is, if Paul wrote it, it was about 60 AD writing from Rome. I like the way that Snodgrass kind of sums up the whole debate that there are difficulties attributing Ephesians to Paul, but those are insignificant compared to the difficulties of attributing it to an imitator or a disciple. Uh, another commentator said that an imitator wrote 90 to 95% the same as Paul. Is that easier to believe, or is it easier to believe that Paul wrote 5 to 10% different from his normal style? It seems a safe bet to attribute it to Paul, but just be aware that there is debate about that. Now, the early manuscripts we're missing the phrase in Ephesus. Is it possible a scribe cut that later to make it a more general epistle? Was it not written in there? Um, it's a little bit hard to say. So it does seem relevant to any first century Roman church. Um, but again, there are some references like powers and authorities are referenced in four of the six chapters. So that could be a reference there. Um, 
But whether it was to Ephesus specifically or two general churches in cities under Roman rule around the empire, the message is still necessary for all of them. There needs to be unity among the Jews and the Gentiles. We need to be one body together with Christ as the head. So it maybe looked a little bit like this. And I should have bothered, borrowed Father Kevin's uh, easel to put this up on. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, is it possible, is it possible that Tychicus was supposed to write in the name of each city as he went and read the letter? In Ephesus. So that it appears more like that. So if we assume it's authentic to Paul and it was a circular letter, Ephesus was certainly among the recipients, even if it wasn't the only recipient of the letter. So all the context, I do think we can apply it to this letter. And I think that we could write in Wheaton here and consider how it was applied in Ephesus and how we can apply it to our lives today. So if Tychicus were here, perhaps he would write, to God's holy people in Wheaton, the faithful of Christ Jesus. So what does this letter have to say to us today? And we'll look at the opening section tonight. The outline of the letter, it's basically divided into two sections. Of course, you have the opening and the closing, as all letters do. But the main body of the letter seems to be about half a theological explanation of the gospel and then half good advice for living a holy life that God has set us apart and called us to do. So you start with this meditation on God's gift of salvation, and our passage tonight falls under that heading. And we're looking specifically at this opening doxology and Paul's prayer of thanks and intercession. He goes on in the next couple chapters to talk about how salvation is comprehensive, uh, how uh, he gives personal prayer, and he gives a further doxology. And then he shifts to this instructions to live a life worthy of our calling or an exhortation to holy living. He talks there about unity and our old and new life and the practical consequences of this life like the household codes that he goes into in Ephesians 5. And then he ends with the armor of God, which might be addressing this whole fear about what if we anger the local gods by becoming Christians. And then his closing. In this section, this prayer, this greeting, this doxology, this blessing, uh, Lynn Kohick's outline of this section emphasizes the Trinity, and I like the way she laid it out. Paul gives thanksgiving to God in Christ. He says we're adopted by the Father, we're redeemed by the Son, and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And I love that Trinitarian nature, which Paul is always bringing into his writing. The goal of the letter seems to be using the two ethnic groups, as so much of Paul's writing was, one body with Christ as the head, which he references that analogy later in the household codes when talking about husbands and wife, about the unity and the head and the body. This section here, these first 14 verses or so, is about what God does. There's so much that we can take from the epistles that are rules for living or ways to arrange our lives or ways to be obedient to God, ways to live our lives as Christians. But this section isn't about that. 
It's about what God does, not about what we're asked to do. And there's something beautifully restful about that. God is the agent. God is the driving force. God's will being enacted in the world is what this is all about. And all of it is done through Christ. This chunk right after the greeting, the greeting is here on the, on the poster board. Right after the greeting, he goes into verse 3. And then from verse 3 to 14, in Greek, that is one sentence. It's one of the longest sentences in the New Testament. It has 202 words. Paul did not like punctuation. But we've broken it up in our English translations to make it easier to read. It's possible that this was an ancient Jewish blessing form. And it has echoes of Old Testament passages, such as 1 Kings 8.15. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept the promise he made to my father David. Or verse 56, praise the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the wonderful promises he gave through his servant Moses. Or Psalm 41, 13, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So Paul brings in a Trinitarian version of that, but it's the same kind of Jewish style blessing. And Paul perhaps imagines that these letters will be read to people in their worship services in the house churches. And so he's kind of modeling worship for his readers as they enter into their own worship services. And he opens with this worship and blessing of God. The big picture breakdown of the letter is that humans receive the benefits of God's grace. Verses 3 through 6 talk about how we bless God for his blessings to us. Verses 7 to 10 talk about celebrating our redemption in Christ and God's plan of unity. And then verses 11 to 14 talk about how we exist to praise God's glory. If we zoom in a little bit more, it talks about what God does. God blessed us in heaven with spiritual blessings. God chose us in him to be holy. God predestined us to adoption. God has given us redemption and forgiveness. God has lavished grace on us. And God has made known to us the mystery of his will to bring unity under Christ, and he's marked us with the seal of the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing the inheritance that God's given us. If you'd like to follow along, pull out your order of service or open your Bible to Ephesians 1 and mark the verbs as we go through it in more detail to see exactly what it is that God does. Circle them or underline them. We'll look back at them when we're, we finish going through it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people, in Ephesus, in parentheses, the faithful in Christ Jesus. This in Christ, this is repeated over and over and over again in this letter. We are in Christ as if he is a place that we dwell, as if he is the manner of reconciliation. He is the agent of reconciliation. We share in his new life. Michael Gorman points out that this is a Christiform life, a cruciform life. It is cross-shaped. This living in Christ is to be a life of sacrifice, modeling Jesus. It's also missional. It's us joining in God's mission. And it's addressed to God's holy people or God's saints. And this is always plural. This isn't a title for one particular person. Now, we might say someone like St. Paul. We would give him that title. But this means all of God's holy people. And it doesn't mean perfection or an extraordinary person. But it means separated out for God. It means set apart for God. It's made holy for God by God's action. So all of us together are saints. We are the holy set apart people set apart from the world for God to join in God's mission. 
we are part of the body, we are in Christ, we are equipped for good works. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God is the one who gives the blessings, and many of those are given through Jesus. That in the heavenlies doesn't mean like distance and far away from us or in the future. It does mean a space beyond earth and time, but it also means the space on earth where God rules. And so the church is part of that. The church, this place where God rules here on earth, this is also the place in the heavenlies where God has given us these blessings. And spiritual blessings doesn't mean lack of material. It's not like spiritual as opposed to physical or material. It's all-encompassing. It's more than, not less than. All these blessings God has given us. And this is the story of what God has done from before creation stretching on into eternity. My husband and kids watched, the older kids watched Gladiator the other night, and uh, the, the quote that was on all the movie posters was, what we do in life echoes in eternity. This is the story of what God has done from creation and echoing on into eternity. We're not going to talk about the second section of chapter 1, but in that section it does say more about Jesus, which is relevant here since we're speaking of being in Christ. Jesus is identified in that section as the head over the church, his body. He has filled everything. Jesus has all power, and he's over every name now and to come. And that really emphasizes the authority that Jesus has to be the conduit of all of these blessings from God. Verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in Jesus. Now this election or predestination or choosing is not, um, not a favor, not a special status. It's not something we earn or something we do or achieve. It is God's work and it's a responsibility. We're chosen to do something. Klein Snodgrass says, The church is made up of believers who have been given freedom in Christ in order to be a community of healing for the broken. And I think that's so relevant for us in our community and in the American church and in churches all over the world where we see church abuse by leaders so rampant. So many people are harmed by people who call themselves shepherds of the flock, who have this responsibility to care for people under them. And yet, they're wolves and they harm. So much so that the reputation of Christians is so tarnished in our culture. We have a responsibility not to be that. We have a responsibility, like Snodgrass says, people both inside and outside the church have the right to expect changed behavior from Christians. That's what it means to be the holy and set-apart people from God. If we decide to follow Jesus, Jesus, but we don't change, if we keep our selfishness, if we keep our love of power and our love of money, and we are not living a cross-shaped life of being poured out for the world, we haven't changed. We are, we're giving up the freedom that God has just given us. We haven't really received the freedom from sin that God gives us. 
Pythagoras says that this letter is about God's blessing to us in Christ and choosing us so that we can live this holy and blameless lives before God. And he says the rest of the letter is just commentary on that main point. God saves us. God changes us. We're blessed to be holy. This is a corporate election. We are chosen together to be the saints. God loves and seeks a people. God is forming a people in God's church. Jesus takes on that task that God had given to Israel to be a blessing to all nations. Jesus becomes that blessing of all nations, and Jesus invites us into the work to be a blessing to all nations. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. If you are living in the shadow of, a, of an idol's temple, and you're worried that if you don't make sacrifices, you won't be protected through childbirth, or your crops won't grow, this promise that we have redemption, we are redeemed, we're rescued from the power of evil forces, is a great promise. This hope and this protection is what these new Christians were clinging to. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. He talks much more about that unity later in the letter, this making of one people. They're not supposed to be separate, but they're supposed to be one. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. It is not, we get elected and then we're brought into Christ, but it is in Christ that we are elected. The emphasis is on God's action and what God does for us. And the section concludes, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This verses 3 through 14 this is a summary of God's work in Christ. It helps people understand the significance of God's gift. And because Jesus has the power because all things are subject to him, he's able to be the head of the body that brings all the other parts into unity. I don't want this to be a sermon that adds to your to-do list. Sometimes that's the point of an application section. You get to the end of the sermon and you want to tell people how to apply it to their lives. But there's really nothing for you to do from this passage. And I think that's powerful. We're supposed to receive compassion. We're supposed to receive grace and God's gifts. We're worthy of his love. He chose us just as we are. We don't have to do anything to be worthy of his love and his care, of his redemption, of his rescue. It's not about what we're supposed to do, but to receive what God's done for us. Look at your notes, and I'm going to go through the list and tell me if I missed any, the list of what God does for us as we review. God does the choosing and God does the changing. God blessed us. God loved us. God chose us. God decided to adopt us. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. He didn't choose us begrudgingly. He purchased our freedom. He forgave our sins. He showered his kindness on us. He revealed his mysteries to us. He makes everything work out according to his plan in Christ. 
He identifies us as his own, and he purchased us. Did I miss any? Okay, I think we all got them. Great. And our response is to praise and glorify him. Like, that's it. That's the only action. It's to echo Paul here, and it's to echo the Old Testament writers that he's repeating. Praise the Lord. Praise the God of Israel. Praise the God of this unified people today, the church. For so much of my Christian life, I have struggled to really believe deep down that God loves me. And it was exacerbated by church leaders who told me I was a bad Christian for not believing that God loved me. But it was simply an impact of growing up with some bad teaching, with a lot of legalism, with the idea that I had to be good enough for God and good enough for other people, that I would be rejected by people and God if I didn't do the right things at the right time, if I didn't make everyone else happy. If I didn't make God happy, God wouldn't love me. And that is a trauma response to religious trauma, to religious abuse. And so with the help of trauma therapists and loving people and being able to heal those wounds in safe community, now I'm able to rest in my belovedness, in my enoughness, in what God does. And I hope that you can receive that tonight. Whether you are already living in that belovedness or whether you need to find that, you are not a bad Christian if you have trouble believing that you're safe in God, that God loves you and values you. You may be a wounded Christian, but you're not a bad Christian. And there is healing and there is patience and there is grace for you to really believe that God has done this for you because it gave him pleasure. He did it because he delights in you. There's a wonderful book I read over the summer. Um, not a religious book. It's called Keeping House While Drowning. And it's about taking care of your home and yourself when you're struggling, when you have chronic illness, or you're dealing with trauma, or you're trying to figure out how to live with neurodivergence. And it's a beautiful, grace-filled book. And she says over and over again, dishes are not moral. Laundry is not moral. You are not a bad person if you do not keep your kitchen clean. And that was such an important lesson for me because in addition to the legalism about not being good enough for God, I believed for a long time that I wasn't a good woman if my house wasn't clean. Not a good woman, not a good Christian woman if I couldn't keep house. So this message just washed over me. I, as I am, am worthy of having a clean home that I can take care of, but I'm not a bad person if I don't. I am, I am enough as I am. I'm not judged by the state of my house, which is good because it's a disaster right now. But as I listened to that audiobook, it just washed over me. I am worth rest and love. And that is the same sensation I have when I read this passage from Paul. That I am worth rest and love. I am worth adoption. I am worth redemption. I am worth everything that God has done for me. And, and as I prayed about this sermon, and I prayed, God, what do you want to say to your people? It was just the sense that you are loved. You are loved just as you are with no effort on your part. You don't have to earn this work from God. So I hope that you'll let Paul's letter, whoever it was addressed to, be a balm to your soul tonight and to receive all the wonderful things that God has done for us.